from the Three Story Method Podcast Network. This is the Serial Fiction Show. I'm Christine Daigle. And I'm J.P. Reinbush. Welcome to the Writer's Serial Fiction Show. If you haven't listened to today's story, we'd encourage you to pause and go listen to Collings McRae's episode on our companion podcast first. We can only play half the episode. So if you like what you hear, check out the full episode free on Vela. The links to the podcast and the Vela episode are in the show notes. So JP. So Christine. How is life in the Ozarks? It's it's all right. It's not bad. I actually had like a ridiculously productive week. Um, so this is like the weirdest part about when I am not at home. I am either not productive, like period. Or I am very productive. And there is no middle ground. And luckily this week, it has been very productive. <laughs> Last time when I was in LA, it was very not productive. So this is a good balance. But yeah, this week, uh, I ended up taking the reins and I drafted the episode 27 of Nerds, which is going to uh, be our Valentine's Day episode. And I had a a joy with that one. I'm not even going to share the title with you yet because I think it's just, it makes me giggle a lot because I'm a child. Um, so yes, that's been good. And then um, other book stuff, uh, the edits for book three, I'm on the second revisions and I'm already over halfway done with that. And I started like this week. Um, so that's been really good. Mm-hmm. And I'm, then I'm going to get ready to send off book one to... Uh, line editor, then copy editor, almost like within two months of each other. So that's going to be really good. I'm just like super excited. We're really close to publishing. That's amazing. That is, I love that. And I know exactly what you mean. Like when I'm away on my own, sometimes it's like, I'm just going to watch movies and order room service. And other mm-hmm. times it's like, I'm going to write a whole novel. While I'm here. <laughs> so it's, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like maybe it's just like energy, mood, uh, dependency. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea what it is because, like last time, I like watched HBO Max the whole time I was in the hotel, and this time, I went to put on something on Netflix, and I immediately was like, "No, Good I haven't watched a single thing all week, and I don't know why." That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, my my world is always the same world. You know, <laughs> editing podcasts, writing Vela episodes, working on the novel that I you know still have. Trad pub dreams. I forget when this episode is coming out, but um, yeah, I'm doing Futurescapes workshop, which I'm super excited for. So I think it might that? be the last one. Um, so it's a workshop for sci-fi fantasy. I think also horror authors, and uh, you get awesome faculty, uh, agents, editors, awesome authors like CL Polk is doing it um, this year. I forget who else is in there. Um. Oh, Arcady. Um, oh, geez, I'm blanking on her last name. You know, the one that wrote that Texacol and Empire series. Anyways, uh, but yeah, Someone so lots of awesome is. authors, lots of awesome agents are in there, um, awesome editors. And you workshop your first 3,000 words and you're queried to get it ready for Chad Pub submissions. So I'm super excited that I got picked to do that. And um Couple of my other friends are in there, including James, our sound engineer. He got picked for a future stage nice. too. Congratulations, so we're gonna, James. Yeah, freaking right. So we're gonna have a fun time. Okay. 
<laughs> so you alluded to something else and I have no idea what Futurescapes is, but you just said you were picked. So how does this process work? You apply. So you apply and you have okay. to get like, uh, you have to apply with a sample of your work and then they select like, okay. you know, a limited number of people. So I think this might be their last year. They used to do it in person oh. in, in oh, sorry, uh, Utah, people. but like, yeah, you know, pandemic. So we're doing it online, which is super exciting because it's difficult for me to get to Utah. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm excited to be doing it. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Um, yeah. You'll have to tell us when once you do that. I need to hear all the details. Yeah. They don't they tell you who your faculty member is. I don't know yet. So I'm excited to find mm-hmm. out who I'm going to be working ding, with ding. and working with other authors and talking to other authors about what they're doing and reading their stories. So it will be fun. That's really cool. Yeah. You ready to talk to our other? I, yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So JP, I want to talk about Pro Writing Aid. ProWritingAid.com. You know what's really cool? Did you know that they have Pro Writing Aid TV? I what? They I actually do. did not. Pro Writing <laughs> Aid TV. About? I know it's crazy. I just found out about that this week. There are like 140 little training videos that you can watch as a writer uh. to learn new writing techniques. Little bite-sized guides. It's on their YouTube channel. It is awesome. I love that because there is no amount of learning that I will refuse. And that sounds like a wonderful opportunity to make sure that your writing is constantly improving because that's what we should strive for. Exactly. So if you have like a little problem area that you want to... uh, look at or you know even if how how to use something in pro writing aid if you're not sure like how do i use the real time checker how do i use the style report how do i use the sticky sentences it'll train you on that um but also like there's some other other awesome stuff on that uh that you can look up if you have little problem areas that you want to learn about uh you know self editing school if you want to write better for business uh, autobiographical fiction. They have all kinds of things in there where you can do little mini sessions and learn to be a better writer. So I highly recommend you check it out. ProWritingAid.com. Yeah. Uh, they definitely just got a new subscriber. Uh, and I can see that some of these episodes are like two minutes long. Some of them are 50 minutes long. So mm, that sounds pretty cool to me because there are times where you just need to listen to something. Listen to someone chat chat to you about grammar. Why not? Why not? Pro writing aid. Dot com. Use our discount code. You should use code. our code. It's serial 20, S-E-R-I-L 20. Do it. Do it. Okay. So I just wanted to start off talking about your hook in episode one. So we have someone being dragged by a killer. Can you talk <laughs> to me about how you go about thinking about crafting openings that will draw in a reader? Well, I, that one that one had some iterations. And I, I, I write kind of fast and... I don't change a ton, but that opening went through a, a lot. I think writers, I think a lot of writers are visual. Um, I am like a hundred percent visual. And when I see the scene, usually TMI, when I'm thinking about it at night as after I'm writing, um, I, I see it like a video and I saw this person being drugged through this area that I was really familiar with. 
Um, it's it's very swampy, but it's it's in, it's right in the middle of all this busy neighborhood. And I was I just kind of watch it. I know that kind of kind of sounds like a cop out, but I think a lot of writers, especially ones that are pantsers, will recognize that it. I saw it play out, and I try really hard to write down what I see. But that particular the way. And then I'm also mimicking some mystery prologue entrees. You know, genres have their own things that you can get away with. And you can get away with that kind of third person um, prologue in mystery. As a matter of fact, they kind of expect it. I had a romance writer just come off of me about it because she was like, I didn't know who it was. And it was all shady. And, <laughs> and I said, that was the point. It was supposed to be shady. So it's it's something that mystery readers expect. And they kind of like, okay. And I knew I was going into that first scene with Fox and Grace. And it's a, it's a bizarre scene for a a detective novel. Mm -hmm. Um, Detective novels, just a little TMI, 55% male readership. They're not really into menopause. They're not totally into, you know, 30 year old married couples. Um, And they certainly don't expect you to open the book with it. Um, and so I knew I needed the prologue to get my readers to understand it really was a detective novel and there really was going to be some shady stuff and we were going to come back to it. Um, but it was so important because the relationships in this book and introducing Fox and his neurodiversity was so important that I needed to get that intimate scene in right away. It's the crux of the whole book is the relationship that he has with Grace. So it opens up that way. But I've gotten a, Annette, I've got my editor really had trouble with it. You're going to lose everybody. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, yep. I would say differently, but okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so moving into like theme or, or armature, which is more of a, a statement made by the theme. Uh, Christine and I picked up on a couple, one being, you know, a detective novel, justice must prevail no matter the cost. And then I think by having this neurotypical character as your uh, main character really says something about like, don't underestimate those that are different than you. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how you may approach theme when writing? Is it something that you think of in the forefront or something that you uh, may use later? No, it's probably, it's probably what I think of most of all. Um, and I, I really kind of know where I want to go with big themes. And, um, you know, I, I'm a Fox says at one point, he says, you know, I love humans. I'm a biologist. I mean, I, I'm, I love human beings. I love the way they act. I love the way they interact with each other. And I'm fascinated by it. And I'm fascinated by, like I said, not the atypical of it, but the gray of it when we all want so badly for it to be black and white. And so I like the idea of people, um, not that I don't have villains, because I do, I have like bad villains, but everybody's got their their thing. And I hope that makes them interesting. That's It makes them interesting to me. And so those big themes of, you know, ticks, uh, why ticks the way he is, why Rufy's the way he is. You know, one of my favorite stories is how Rufy got his name. And and there's a, a section in the book that, you know, he's the product of rape and it, his mother was given Rohypnol and um, all the kids in the neighborhood called him Rufy. 
And there's a point where Rufy says, hey, you know, I never told my mom. And she just thinks all kids have nicknames, don't they? And so you've got this, I hope, complex and wordery of where people go through their lives. You know, I'm older than y'all, just a little bit. And you go through things and you realize that those layers can really add a lot of value. So, you know, that brings us to these main characters that are, you know, in their 50s as well. Instead of your your typical, I guess, um, Agatha's were older than that. So I'm not too far off, right? 100%. But yeah, it's, it's about the sociology to me. So it really is about what are these guys doing and why are they doing it? And I mix, uh, Rufy's a pastor. And, it, you know, I have a lot of friends that are evangelical Christians and they're like, what? There's cussing in your book, you know? Well, people cuss you know, cops cuss. And we're talking about what life looks like and how interesting it is. If you don't, well, everybody's got filters, but if you can get your filters down just a little bit, the world becomes brighter and people become interesting. And I'm hoping that that's the biggest theme, taking down the filters, looking at everybody, realizing that maybe it was kind of interesting that they're the way they are. And maybe I should just give them a chance. So that's, what I, you know, it's one of those big things about, that I hope everybody takes away. It, Fox is easy in a way because he's a target group. You know, I do talk about him being bullied. He's also very, very handsome. And so he was bullied for being smart and handsome and not having a clue how to read the room. And so we do have a little bit of that kind of theme work weaving around it, but I don't ever want that to be dominant. I want the gray to be dominant. I want the reality to be dominant. So I really work at that. I'm a okay. philosophy major. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. So uh, you were talking a little bit about, you know, what, why your characters do certain, th certain things. So I'd like to dig a, a little bit more into Fox about uh, why he's doing what he's doing. It seems like his motivation as, as is kind of typical in mysteries or crime novels is justice but it seems like what he really needs is to attend to his personal life. He's got some things going on there that aren't quite right. So I'd love to hear about, uh, you know, how you decide what a character wants and needs when you're constructing your stories. Yeah. It, you know, Fox is, um, I think it's probably hard um, at least for me to, to understand how many tools he's got in his bag. I mean, he's, he's capable, especially at 50. Again, there's that age Thing again, he has done what uh, a typical neurologist neurologist will call compensation. So he's not he's not dealing exactly the same way he was when he was getting beaten up at ten. He he has not only realized, hey, I'm smarter than almost everybody in the room, uh, and he and he is, but he's also realized how he can compensate for the gaps in his. Um, his emotions. And a lot of times we think of autism as a, a gap in empathy. It really isn't. And, and Fox talks about that. He says, you know, he says a lot of stuff about it, but he'll say, you know, I, you think I don't love, but I love very much. My problem is respect. <laughs> I just, I don't know how to respect people. And I think I'm supposed to protect them if I love them. So respect goes out the window. Now I have misread my own writing, but that's the gist of what he says. And he says, you know, people think I don't listen. I get a bad rap because I just don't respond. 
And so it's not an empathy. It isn't a, the gaps are different than I think a lot of neurotypicals think. It's more the way you interact, the way you take in the information and then the way you push it back out. And um, he's been able to compensate for that. And so detecting, and in, in, in my newest book, The Reluctant Whistleblower, um, he has a lawyer friend who says, can you get time off from your detective side hustle? And um, that's very, that's very close to true. He's, he's playing at his employment. It's things that are easy for him that he can do. It's the rest of his life. That's the difficulty, right? Just like you said, you got to, he's spending most of his energy thinking about all those people because that's where he has to work really hard. He doesn't really have to work hard at the rest of it. It, it comes easier, but it doesn't make the part that's hard that much easier. It just, as a matter of fact, I would argue it sometimes makes it worse. And that's why I put anchor people in like his boss, who's known him for many, many years and calls him out constantly and won't let him get away with stuff. So um, we talk about the way he handles his emotional life. I think it's probably the dominant thing that happens. At least it feels like it to me. When we look at this first episode, and we broke it down using the three C's, conflict, choice, and consequence, uh, we see two scenes, really, that are the the big forerunners. The first one being the conflict, uh, does do, are they going to sleep together? Um, that choice being that she's going to blame it on the menopause. Uh, and then the <laughs> consequence being that Fox says uh, he knows when she's faking. And then following that, uh, we have the conflict um, that the captain is insisting that Fox, you know, focuses and doubles down on this case. It's an important case. And then that choice being um, that Fox takes the bait and gets caught off guard. And then he refocuses on the subject, bringing the attention to that DNA work to be done. And then that following consequence is getting that, like, moment of approval from this captain to, like, continue on with this investigation. So I'm curious, how do you approach scene construction? And what does that look like in your process? Well, I knew ahead of time that, um, you know, Fox is obsessive. And um, that's a big part of his personality. And and he and, and what you're going to see if you follow me down this path of these people's story is that grace, in fact, and this goes back to one of the themes we've been talking about. Grace is in this dysfunctional relationship with Fox there. He's not alone. He's not doing this by himself. And so you see that we open the scene with her pretty much complaining about how difficult it is. And, um, you'll see very quickly that she's 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 on board with almost all of the dysfunction and they're moving towards resolution which is another theme i hope i always say you know um it's not where you've been and it's not where you are right now it's where you're going and so i i want to push these people forward in their relationships in a way that's realistic um so when i set up a scene i'm thinking about the care it's very character driven and I'm thinking about the characters and how am I going to develop them for the rest of the series, not just the story, because I'm very aware that these short mysteries are not long enough to do what I really want to do, which is all this big thematic stuff I'm talking about with these relationships. Fantastic. So I am curious, do you have any tips that you could share 
uh, for writing a good crime thriller. Yeah, you can't have too many words. You can't do the 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 wordy 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 thing. There's a pacing that I think is really important. That I that and I think it's true of all genres. I think they all have their own pacing. Uh, but you have to know that the pacing of a mystery is is pretty different. It's very um, almost choppy. It's got to move around. But at the same time, you've got to keep those threads going. And so and you have to throw the red herrings out because there's always that story that looks like it's going to be so important. And then it turns out it's nothing at all. And you're moving on to another place. So one of the things that you have to think about is your threads. Uh, you have to have a red herring or two. Uh, and you obviously have to have more than one thread moving to your final story. How is it going to turn out? Now, mine, I think you could argue are in some ways are more thrillers than mysteries in the sense that you often know pretty quickly, kind of, sort of what's going on, but you don't know exactly how it's going to work out and who's going to be the bad guy. So it's not quite the, you know, I got to get everybody in the, in the living room with the brandy and, you know, call them all out. We, we generally have a pretty good idea as we weave through, um, the bad guys pop to the surface and we start to know what's going on. So uh, I think you need to understand what your pacing is and how you're going to weave those threads and keep, keep that pacing a lot faster than you might think. If you've not, if you're not a mystery reader and you're not a mystery writer, you really have to think about the pacing and make sure it goes a lot faster than most of the stuff you're reading. And I could probably have mystery writers that would argue with me on that. <laughs> I think that's true. So you've mentioned, um, you know, red herrings and clues. And I'm curious, how do you use those red herrings? How do you use those clues when you're crafting and planning out your novel? How do you, how do you approach that? Well, I'm, I'm mostly a pantser. And I have to tell you, when um, in, in the second half of the, of the scene, because I, um, the first three free episodes in Ruin uh, are 10,000 words. So there's an awful lot of that book. It's a third of the book, um, or sorry, probably 15% of the book um, is, is there at the beginning. And I did not know myself when they went back to the scene of the crime in the second part of the first episode and they found the, the, the funny old lady pen. I had no idea when that, when he picked that pen up, I was like, what is that? I had no idea. I hadn't done it. Hadn't thought it. He, he does many things um, in on his own. And I'm not quite the way some of my fantasy writer friends who their characters are just mayhem and shenanigans all the time. And they're trying to pull them But but Fox will really come up with something. He'll notice something that I didn't notice yet and he'll pull it in. And so that that old lady pin became the crux of the whole mystery coming together. And I knew it was going to be how we did it. I wasn't even sure how we were going to do it. So the pantsing versus the plotting is a big part of the answer to that question. Um, do you sit and, and and I think there's a spectrum not to take the spectrum scenario too far but i think that people are in various places the the pantsers in my opinion they're just high on adrenaline it's just an adrenaline rush and so you're kind of following them i didn't know fox was welsh the nickname just 
I didn't know it. So as it comes along, as you're writing the scene, I see the video scenes, but then the details of the scenes, as I'm writing the video down on paper, they come in. And I, I, I was joking a lot because it's hard to write. You guys know that. But I always say, you know, as a detective writer, I'm not a writer. I'm just reporting the crime scene. I'm just writing down what I'm finding. And there's a little bit of that because of the pantsing. And I, I wouldn't give that up. And I think Vela drives the pantsing even more. Mm-hmm. Which, again, yeah. it, it's a rush. <laughs> it's a fantasy rush. It's fun. <laughs> So talking about that, and you had talked a bit earlier about how, you know, this is kind of gritty and you're kind of looking at life as it as it really is. Do you think there's anything that's off limits when you're writing a serial about a killer? Um, what I think, and, and I'm, I, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's my age, maybe it's the fact that I'm a, a grandmother, but what I think is not everything's off limits, but the way you talk about it is is it needs to be considered carefully. What I don't like is something that is gratuitous. That word is overused in sexuality and violence, but you can be gratuitous in anything. I was watching a police procedural that's, you know, 15 years old. I mean, everything in it was gratuitous. And I thought, oh, what a waste of writing. You know, you you're where's your, where's your writing? Where's your critical thinking and your subtlety in your writing? And so I think to me, while there are certain subjects that are difficult, um, and Rona the Watcher is about child harm. Um, the victims are children. And I, I hope I was sensitive. I did get people to read that for me. Um, I'm a fade to black person in almost everything. There's only one scene that really shows violence and that's when the bad guy gets it. Um, and it had to happen. I, I didn't, uh, I would have been fine if it didn't have to happen. I think fade, I like my imagination. I, I'm always telling my younger author friends, you know, you, you're not giving everybody enough to imagine in their heads. Imagination is fun. Um, so I think fade to black on a lot of that on the, the basic sex and violence is, is very good. I think you need to lead them up and then let them do their own thing. But um, I think the way you talk about certain subjects um, can be gratuitous. And I think that that's a sin as a writer. I think it's lazy as well as as potentially being offensive. Um, But to me, it can be really lazy. You need to handle. If you're going to be a writer and you're going to write about humans now, if you're writing about dragons, I do. I believe in the canon. I'm a big canon believer. You can't be messing with the canon. So you got to stick with the rules of dragons or vampires um, or Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but you you also have to have your own complexity off of that canon. And if you're just throwing stuff up, that's that's gratuitous to me and that's offensive as a writer. Um, I think if you handle things with care, and critical thinking, and you put it on the page that way, that almost any subject can be handled. And, and I think it can be really helpful. And I, I can't go too far off on this, but writers and creators through the, through the eons have been the ones that broke ground 
They're the ones that said, look at what you're doing, how wrong it is by showing it, by writing about it and saying, look at what you're doing to this person. Look at what you're doing to this woman. She threw herself under a train because of what you people are doing in your society. This little child has been working in a coal mine because of what you do. So the idea of censorship is really bad to me. I don't, I don't like adult censorship. I think creativity has a really important purpose. And I think sometimes that's to push our faces in what we're doing. And so the definition of offensive becomes different, I think, when you think about it that way. I really like Washington. that approach. <laughs> no, I really, I really like that approach because it's very much a like anything is within limits. It's more about the respect of the work um, because there is that occasional need to sit in that discomfort and really feel that moment. Uh, so, yeah, I really like that approach. Uh, to switch gears, a hundred percent. I am curious, <laughs> what does your daily routine look like? Well. I'm retired, supposedly, and I live next door to my grandchildren, who are three and 11. So my three-year-old, I have to tell you the story. It happened today. She came in and she said, okay, Nana, you get me juice, you put on Tayo, and then you can write your silly book. <laughs> so that's the kind of respect I get. <laughs> That's a quote from the three-year-old. <laughs> so you take care of me and then you go off and do that silly thing you do. Um, so I I do, I have my grandkids a lot. They come back and forth. The door's open. I'm in Florida. Um, and I also still consult some in my old world. So I, I'm a, I'm a have to keep busy kind of person. And so I write in the morning. I'm a morning person. I'm up by five o'clock, 4.30. And I try to write, take my grandson to school. And then I try to write a little bit more before the three-year-old shows up to boss me around. And um, then I usually do um, social media sometime during the day. Um, and I, I just, I need more inspiration to do social media than I do to write. Um, so I'm always looking for something and trying to figure out the right way to communicate with everybody. Um, which is, you know, when you're not a TikTokian, it's, I've got to figure that out. I've got to do that. <laughs> Same. Yeah, I have great respect for the TikTokers. 100%. You can get lost on that thing. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah. I, I sometimes find the, the social media more energy draining than energy filling, but you know, it's, it's necessary. Um, so also what have you learned about this platform, Vela? or writing serials in general that you would like to share with other writers? Well, I think, um, first of all, I, I think that you should look at it as an opportunity. Now, you know, I don't know how much of the Vela nitty gritty you want to get into, but if, if, you're, if writers are your audience, you know, Amazon is trying to launch this um, platform. It's in beta. And we get frustrated as, as the writers on the platform, but it, it is in beta. And so the whole purpose is that we are beta testers for Amazon and the readers are beta testers. And we have to have some understanding of that. We, we sort of went into an agreement about that when we, when we launched. So I try to look at it completely as an 
opportunity as a positive experience. And it has been for me overwhelmingly. No Pollyanna intended. It, it drove me to learn to write. The more I truly believe that the more you read and the more you write, the better writer you are, period. End of story. Now, if you're not getting any feedback or you won't listen to feedback, then obviously you're not going to move as quickly forward. But Vela has forced the words. And so I think, and you also are forced to think about readers at least once, maybe twice a week, if not more, whether they're talking to you or not, because you're posting that episode. So I think Vela is a really a, a great opportunity for almost any writer. Um, I don't see a downside to it right now. You're basically getting paid to draft. Now I need to have a big disclaimer because I don't mean you throw bad stuff. I, you know, I, it, it burns, it burns my soul. Like, you know, to see really poorly edited stuff thrown up anywhere. Um, so I'm not meaning that, but I do mean you get to sort of test it as you're going. And then I'm, you know, as I'm getting ready to publish the books in the summer, I'm having them re-edit it because they're, they're going to be written a little bit differently from the Vela episodes. And even Ruin that started off as a novel has been broken up and needs to be brought back. So I think the idea that your writing is different in episodic versus novel is fascinating. And I think it's a great opportunity for writers to start to learn their craft. Why is it different? What makes it different? Um, there's been some negative reactions to Bella. I think people want things that aren't particularly, they're perfectly lovely, but they're not particularly reasonable. Um, the idea that you can get paid to write episodes to me is I don't, I don't get what's wrong with it. So let's do that. And then I will continue to do it even after any kind of bonuses stop. Um, because I think, again, it's just been a really positive experience for craft, but you can't obviously stay there. And we don't know what the, what the future of Vela is going to be. I think this is at least the third, maybe the fourth iteration that Amazon's had with episodic. Yeah, there was Kindle Worlds before I remember. I, I don't know. Right now, I Kindle. think was one. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I don't. I, so, but I think the only thing I can say, I'm not an economics major. Um, maybe we get Fox to comment. But you know, Wattpad was bought for a million bucks or for a billion. Sorry, buh, with a B. Um, and Radish was purchased for a gigantic amount. This is the dominant type of platform that the world wants. I don't know how Amazon can ignore that. I now they can cuz they can do anything literally. I mean I mean no disrespect. We're a rounding error for Amazon. Um so they could stop tomorrow. Um but I think this is an audience that they want. This is a marketplace that I have trouble thinking that somebody who thinks of themselves as a publisher wouldn't want to get in and dominate this market. I think they could do it. If they do, I'd be interested to see that they really are elevating the quality. Um, so that would be a good thing, I think. I think. Totally agree. So as of now, Rune of the Watcher has 10 five-star reviews. Do yeah. you have a marketing strategy or approach that you took that you suspect garnered those reviews? No. You know, I think, I think the book struck a chord. In some people, because those are 
almost entirely organic. Now, I know who two of them are, uh, but I was fascinated when they popped up. And I've got one and a half books that only has three. So I think I actually, I don't know. I mean, I think every everyone wants their baby to be understood. But I think that there were some people that said, okay, this is a little different. I'm going to, I'm going to give her some kudos for it. I just recently, and I always tell her, I'm a big encourager. I, I love, my dad was an artist. He made, he raised us all as an artist. So I'm very interested in the creative arts and people who are making their living as creators. So I have always talked about reviews. I've always talked about, you know, encourage your writers, encourage your authors. You need to do that. They need to do it. I don't care if it's James Patterson out on Jupiter Island. Um, You're a creator. You're vulnerable. (laughs) We're wounded, people. You know, come up. So um, I do encourage reviews, but I haven't specifically encouraged uh, my reviews. I think it's really the combination of, and two of them are men, which was interesting. One of them thinks I'm a man, Mm -hmm. which that's okay, too. (laughs) yeah so i think it's the unique i hope it's a reflection of them understanding what i was doing i definitely think so excellent (laughs) yeah i love that so as a final question what would you say to someone looking to start a serial oh right just put the words down on paper You've got to start writing. And you also, I think the other thing I would say is respect your process. I'm one who loves to go and listen to other people. And I love to get advice. But that doesn't mean I'm going to use it. I use it in my little bag to figure out what my orchestra looks like and what instruments I need. Uh, And if something makes sense, I might try it out. And so I would I would really encourage people to get on Clubhouse or to get on um, someplace where you can get around writers talking. There's a couple of really good rooms on Clubhouse where people talk about craft, um, whether it's screenwriting or whether it's, you know, 50 to 50K, you know, romance dominated kind of things. Anything you're into, I think you can find it, but you can also find it in other places. I'm I'm not really hyping Clubhouse, but I think it's one that's been a little uh, writer dominant. So I think you could find something there pretty easily. Um, my grandson is um, a podcast learner. So I think you you need to learn your craft. I, I'm a bit of an le- elitist, I have to tell you. I, I will read something that isn't written well if I can see where they're going. But you know, the, there's a part of me that wants to redline it and send it back to them. So I, th- I think you have to learn your craft and you've got to respect that it's, that it's a craft and that your story can be fabulous, but you need to learn how to tell your story so people can hear you. And if you're pulling them out of the story all the time with whatever they are distracted by, whether it's editing errors or whether it's a plot bunny, um, you're not doing anybody any favors. So I really believe learning your craft is is important, but you got to write and you got to get feedback and you have to be willing to take the feedback, which is hard. I think that's hard for writers. It crushes our, our little spirits. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. 
You really got to learn, you know, it's not personal. It's just about the work. It's not about, it's not a judgment of you as a person. You got to find a safe place though, right? You got to find the people that you take, because I'll take feedback, very specific feedback. And this may be reflecting a filter that's a mistake, but there's people that I listen to about certain subjects and, and I will talk to them about the other subjects, but I may not take it in quite as internally. So I think you have to learn what your tribe is and where you're bringing in that information and what kind of information are you looking for and where do you want to go? And I think what I would, and I've always said this to everybody, whether it's in creativity or, or any other area, if you let someone tame your voice, you might as well sit down and stop talking. You've got to find a way to speak and but take the feedback, but don't, don't tame your voice. Don't let anybody take that away from you. If you have a story to tell, you need to tell it and you need to tell it the way you should tell it. Um, and not, um, I don't know if this is the right word, but not sanitize it, not make it. And, and don't go, you know, don't go the easy route, write it, write your story. So I I'm, I'm afraid that people we're in an environment now I've seen it before believe it or not, you young people, it's not the first time where there's a lot of um, clamoring for people to get in line and do the same things. And creative people can't, can't do that. We can't fall into that. That's not who we are. It's not what our purpose is. So that, that would be probably one of the bigger messages is don't tame your voice. Say what you got to say. Speak. I love it. Excellent note to end on. That's good advice. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us. Our thanks today to Collings McRae for letting us break down their episode. We want to thank you for listening to the Reader Serial Fiction Show. If you know someone who might enjoy the show, send them your favorite episode link. And if you want to leave an Apple podcast review, we read all of them and use your suggestions. You can also leave a comment on the episode on our website, SerialFictionShow.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, we have a Patreon where you can get Serial Fiction Show episodes early. We also have tons of other things in the works. So check us out at patreon.com slash Serial Fiction Show. Thanks. And we'll see you next time with another Serial Fiction episode. And, and that's, a, that's wrap. a wrap. So have you seen, you, you're not a TikTok person, so you probably haven't seen this, but there's this girl, there's this girl who goes through this drive-thru and she's, um, it's a Starbucks and she's like, Hey, can I order the pumpkin spice bread? And they're like, Oh, I'm sorry. We're all out of that. And she's just like, okay, thank you. <laughs> like, it's so sad. The way you said, okay, thank you. Like, <laughs> okay, thank it, you. it reminded me of that just because it's like how all millennials feel whenever they're told bad news. Okay, thank you. <laughs>